Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure in fellowship, ready to focus on the word, and to let the Holy Spirit apply these things to your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, that in your grace you gave us everything we need for life, for godliness. You've provided everything we need for our spiritual life. You've given us a sufficient salvation. You've given us a completed canon of Scripture. You have uh, indwelt us by your Holy Spirit, who also fills us, helps us to understand your word. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, may we not take these things for granted May we realize what a tremendous privilege it is to have your word and to have a teaching from your word. And we think about the uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of believers down through the centuries who have not had access to their own copy of a completed canon. And we recognize what a privilege that is that we have this. And Father, we pray that you guide and direct our, our thoughts this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews, just briefly by way of introduction, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, introduces the concept of a new covenant. Christ is the mediator of a better covenant in verse 6, and the writer argues if that first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second, for finding fault with them, because the Mosaic covenant was never designed to be permanent. Sin had not been dealt with yet. The sacrifices, the worship in the tabernacle and temple were designed to point to the work of the person and the work of the Messiah. And it was through the ritual of Old Testament worship that God was teaching the Jews and those that were proselytes to to, uh, the worship of God in the Old Testament. Uh, God was teaching them about His grace and about salvation. But the Mosaic Covenant was limited. It was between God and Israel only. It was a governmental uh, constitution, a document designed to organize the society, the legal structures, and the uh, religious systems, the ritual systems of of Israel in the Old Testament. So it was never designed to be a permanent covenant, and it was going to be replaced, according to Jeremiah 31, with a new covenant, which is what is quoted from Hebrews 8, 8 and following, is simply a lengthy quotation of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and following. We've studied the covenants of Israel, that there were eight, the Gentile covenants, the creation covenant, 
or Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, and the Noahic covenant are all basically modifications of one another, and they govern all creation. They cover all mankind. They're still in effect. Then after the failure at the Tower of Babel, God calls out Abraham, promises him land, seed, and blessing. These covenants are further developed in the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and uh, the new covenant. All of these are permanent covenants. Usually we use the term unconditional, but there were conditions there uh, not for the permanency of the covenant, but for uh, the full enactment of these covenants. God was not going to bring Israel into the land until they were, uh, and, and give them all of the blessings until they were uh, fully obedient. And then there's one uh, temporary covenant, which was the uh, Mosaic Covenant. We looked at the uh, various aspects of the New Covenant. We looked at the Scripture, primary Scripture that uses the term New Covenant. That is the only Scripture that uses the term New Covenant is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. We'll look at a number of these other passages uh, this evening. It, the New Covenant is between God, who's the party of the first part, and the house of Judah and the house of Israel. That's what's clearly stated in Jeremiah 31 and also in Hebrews 8, which raises the question, what about the church? Because the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. The importance of the covenant is that it provides for the future regeneration of the nation of Israel and the fulfillment of all the other covenants and promises to them. Remember, I pointed this out last time, when we look at these parallel passages that uh, uh, predict a giving of a another covenant, an eternal covenant, everlasting covenant, that these other passages uh, always seem to be connected to the Israel being in the land, that when this new covenant comes into effect, it's connected to Israel being brought back, the restoration of the nation in obedience to God and regeneration in the land. So you can't separate the two. There's always that that connection between uh, between the uh, <clears throat> inauguration and fulfillment of the new covenant and its uh, and the fulfillment of the land covenant. Now, if there are four passages where the new covenant is mentioned in the um, New Testament, other than in Hebrews chapter eight. These are Luke twenty two twenty. And 1 Corinthians 11.25. 1 Corinthians 11.25 is actually a quote of the Luke 22.20 passage, which is the uh, statement that Jesus makes at the communion, at the Passover meal. He says, this cup is poured out for you is the, the new covenant of my blood. And I've highlighted the word the in both Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11 because the article is present in the Greek text. Now, because of that, there were some that came along and said that in 2 Corinthians 3.6 and Hebrews 9.15, the lack of the article indicated that this is a different new covenant. And so in the 20th century, there were some uh, dispensationalists who uh, proposed the idea of two new covenants, a new covenant for the church and a new covenant uh, for Israel. And this was primarily held by faculty members at Dallas Theological Seminary as well as uh, a number of uh, the students who came out from Dallas Seminary in the 
twenties, thirties, and forties. Dallas Seminary was founded in 1923, and it's very interesting to study the early history. It really wasn't very lar- large until uh, the forties, and then there were a number of men who came back from World War II, wanted to go to seminary, and that's when this Dallas really uh, began its growth. But Dallas Seminary was founded by a man who was ordained as a Southern Presbyterian evangelist. He was a uh, musical evangelist trained at the Oberlin uh, Conservatory of Music up in Ohio, which is where he was from, by the name of Lewis Berry Chafer. Chafer was mentored by a reformed uh, alcoholic and lawyer. I'm not identifying the two. Don't make that mistake. Uh, but, he, but you had a reformed alcoholic and he was a lawyer, and he was a decorated Confederate war hero who uh, came to understand the gospel after uh, the Civil War in St. Louis by the name of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. And Schofield was mentored by James Hall Brooks, who was a Presbyterian pastor in uh, St. Louis and who was a dispensationalist. And Schofield uh, and Later, Chafer and men like Dwight Moody, who was a well-known evangelist, Bible teacher, founder of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and other men uh, that were well-known in the late uh, 1800s uh, frequently spoke at Bible conferences in places like Northampton, Mass, where Massachusetts, where Moody had a school. In fact, Moody is buried there. They met at they had a prophecy conference that met annually. Uh, in the, I think it was in the 1880s, the Niagara Bible Conferences. There was uh, an Episcopal uh, church in Manhattan that also uh, hosted some of these prophecy conferences. It was a period of time when dispensationalism was growing and more and more people were teaching that. And there were many people who came out of Episcopal, Presbyterian, and other backgrounds who were premillennial because they held to a uh, literal teaching of the word. Well, uh, Schofield mentored this young uh, musical evangelist by the name of Lewisbury Chafer. And in fact, he even said about Chafer, he said, you know, Lewis, someday you might have, uh, uh, you might make a passably good teacher if you just had something to say. And so he taught him. But Chafer never had the privilege of a seminary education and being trained in the original languages, which is why when he uh, structured the curriculum at Dallas Seminary at the beginning, he emphasized a full four-year curriculum for both Greek for the study of the New Testament and Hebrew for the study of the Old Testament because Chafer understood the limitations he had in his ministry because he couldn't get into the original languages on his own. And so that was why that was built into the curriculum. And unfortunately, like everything else, we tend to see this dilution occur over time. And even though you can still go to Dallas and take four years of Greek and four years of Hebrew, that's not required. You're only required to have, I think, three semesters now of Hebrew and uh, two years of Greek. Uh, that's just your basic basic requirement. Well, Chafer taught this view that there were two new covenants, one with the church and one with Israel. And um, that's where we really are going here is understanding the basic issues with the new 
covenant and understanding uh, these particular passages. Uh, and this first view is that, well, let me back up just a second. There was a, there is a non-dispensational view that the church replaces national Israel and so the church fulfills the new covenant in the present age. That is the view of replacement theology. That's what you'll find in covenant theology and other non-dispensational, uh, theological systems. But in, uh, in dispensationalism, you have basically four views that ha- have developed. The first three uh, are pretty close. The fourth, I think, is the position of, well, I know it is, the position of progressive dispensationalism, but I think that it's neither progressive nor dispensational. But that is a view that has uh, taken over in recent years, motivated by the fact that too many faculty members operating on academic arrogance want to follow the principle outlined in 1 Samuel 7, like the Jews in the Old Testament, they want to have a king like everybody else. They want to have the academic respectability of everybody else. And so they have, they're, they're trying to find a middle road of compromise with covenant theology so people won't run them down and denigrate their intellectual capabilities because they're dispensationalists. Now, you may not realize that, but dispensationalists are everybody's whipping boy out there now and have been for the last 30, 40 years. That, that it's like if you're, if you have a, if you're a dispensationalist, then you don't have brain cells that recognize each other. You're not very bright. You're just, oh, well, you're one of those. Well, this first view, the view that Chafer held and that's uh, written about in his systematic theology is that there are two new covenants, one with the church and one with Israel. This view was also uh, held by Charles Ryrie uh, in his early book that came out in 1953 called The Basis of the Premillennial Faith. And Walvert also held this view in his book The Millennial Kingdom when that first uh, came out. However, Ryrie and Walvoord, as well as Dwight Pentecost, who wrote the massive tome of his uh, doctoral dissertation, Things to Come, which is a classic on uh, prophecy and dispensationalism, all changed in the 50s and realized that the two New Covenant view really wasn't exegetically uh, defensible, that you just couldn't go to any passages in Scripture uh, that... Uh, supported this. So uh, because of that, you have people like Chafer who actually held to nine covenants because they had this extra uh, new covenant with with the church. So they, they tried to make this hard and fast distinction between the church and Israel to the degree that they, they're basically coming up with a new covenant that's not mentioned in the scripture. And the only argument they could really come up with is the fact that these these two passages, 2 Corinthians 3.6 and Hebrews 9.15, did not have an article. And unfortunately, they made a, what is a common sort of first-year first year Greek sort of error, is they think that the lack of an article means that it's indefinite, like it would be in English. In English, you either have the chair or a chair. But in Greek, you can have the article or the or not have the article, but the noun 
chair or God or covenant can still be inherently definite because of the nature of the noun or the language itself. There are different uses for the article and different nuances to the lack of article. In Greek, it's only proper to speak of an article. You never speak, uh, you never call it a definite article because in Greek there's no indefinite article. So it's really a mistranslation to state, the, to put the, the word A, the English indefinite article in here as a, because New Covenant was inherently a definite concept, just like as I pointed out before in British English, they'll talk about going to hospital instead of the hospital because hospital is inherently definite. They'll talk about going to university rather than the university because university is inherently uh, definite. Same thing you have in, with the problem with the article in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No article in the Greek... And so Jehovah's Witnesses come along and say, oh, see, that should be translated a God, not the, not, not God, definite, but he's just a God. He's not full deity. So failure to understand these little nuances in Greek grammar can lead to some problems. Okay, the um, second position was a position held by John Nelson Darby. Darby, like many other theologians, great theologians down through history, was a trained lawyer. He went to uh, Dublin. He went to Trinity College in Dublin, where he uh, studied law, and then afterwards he decided that God was calling him into the ministry and he entered into the ministry as he uh, grew. He was ordained in the Anglican Church, but he reacted to the um, he reacted to the theology of Anglicanism, and so he broke off. And he was one of the founders of what later became known as the Plymouth Brethren movement. But it is John Nelson Darby who is the founder, the father of modern dispensationalism. He didn't come up with this. He wasn't the first person in history to do this, but he was the first theologian to really systematize dispensational theology and to consistently interpret the Scriptures in light of this distinction between Israel and the church from a premillennial, pre-tribulational viewpoint. And he's the first to systematically articulate a doctrine of the rapture, although in recent years... There have been numerous studies of others down through church history who have held to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, that the church would not go through uh, the tribulation. Darby's view was that the church participates in the new covenant only by way of application. The new covenant with Israel, as far as he was concerned, had not yet begun because the new covenant is with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. There's no mention of a new covenant with the church anywhere in Scripture. And therefore, that covenant, while it is the sacrifice of Christ is cut on the cross, the covenant with Israel doesn't come into effect. It's not established until Jesus Christ returns as the Davidic king to bring back Israel into the land and establish them as a regenerate nation in the land at the second coming. The third view that is that has been held on this is that the church has some part in the new covenant. 
there's some application primarily in regeneration. Because as you will see when we get into Jeremiah 31, that's one of the main thrusts of the new covenant is that God says, I will give you a new heart. This is terminology related to regeneration. This is why when uh, Jesus comes to Nicodemus, he says, don't you understand that you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again? And by that, Jesus indicates that Nicodemus, who is this great Bible teacher, he, uh, and, and Arnold will point out that there is a tradition in, in among Jews that uh, Nicodemus wasn't his proper name. Actually, Nico, the first part of that, you have Nicodemus, Demus, like de- democracy, what's going on up in Iowa tonight. That's the people. Nico, like Nike, the, your shoes, the Greek goddess of victory, and so or, or the one who is the overcomer, the one who's the ruler. So Nicodemus was a ruler of the people. And that was his title, but that wasn't his name. And there is a tradition, I don't know how true it is, but Arnold will talk about it when he goes through this, that Nicodemus was the premier rabbi in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, when Jesus was in Jerusalem. And so he was uh, supposed to know more about the Old Testament than anybody. So Jesus says, well, don't you know? That you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, and the only how do you how would you know that from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, and these other passages we're we're going to go to in, in the New Covenant. And so there are other dispensationalists that hold this view that the church has a specific role in the New Covenant only in term, terms of of um, regeneration, and this. It may sound like you, you may not be able to distinguish in your in your thinking the difference between two and three. They are very close. Most of the writers uh, do in, suggest that, but these first three views are all held by traditional dispensationalists. But the new view that's been invented in the last 20 years by progressive dispensationalists is that the new covenant was inaugurated at the cross, so we're already under the new covenant, and uh, but it hasn't fully come into force yet. One of the implications of this is that, as we saw last time, the prophecy of Joel 2, that your young men will see dreams and your, your daughters will prophesy and your old men will, will see visions, uh, all of that and speaking in tongues and all this would be legitimate. And, and that's, where, that's where, actually, that's where like the vineyard movement, some of the other... Modern charismatic movements go with that based on this view that the kingdom is already established, but it's not yet fully here. That's that little catchphrase, already but not yet. And this is why I pointed out last week when we were talking, when I went through Joel 2 and Acts 2, and we'll come back to that back in September in the, this Hebrew study. I went through those four different ways in which Old Testament was used in the New Testament that, uh, based on Arnold Fruchtenbaum's study, that this is really the third view there that in Acts 2, Peter was saying this is like, there's a similarity. It's not a direct fulfillment. So when Peter says this is what the prophet Joel said, what you tend to hear from your Gentile background is 
that this is a direct fulfillment on the same order as Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But there were other ways in which Old Testament passages are uh, cited in this sort of fulfillment terminology. There, there's the literal fulfillment, the literal prophecy. Literal fulfillment was the first view. That's Micah 5.2. The second view was that it's just a historical event that's applied uh, typologically. That's the passage uh, in, in Hosea talking about that the uh, daughters of Rama were weeping for children. Then there's this, this third view, I believe, and I, I can't remember the exact passages for each one of these, but the third view was this is like that. There's a parallel. And then the fourth view was the fact that there's no actual literal statement. It's just sort of a summary. And I went through those in detail. But this issue of interpreting Acts 2 and Joel 2 is fundamental and foundational to what's going on in this development of uh, of a progressive dispensationalism. And their view is that the new covenant's already here. We're living in the new covenant. So aspects of this are already true, but not everything. And so it progressively comes into effect, which is why they got the name progressive dispensationalists. And so that's the difference is that traditional dispensationalists and I believe they have the best position, is that Jesus offered the kingdom. It was rejected, and therefore it's postponed. And so the new covenant isn't established until Jesus returns at the second second coming. But progressive dispensationalism, so there's some form in which we're already in the kingdom. It's a spiritual form of the kingdom. Jesus is spiritually reigning from David's throne in heaven. And they interpret passages in Acts 2 and in Acts 3 the same way amillennial covenant theologians do. And see, what happens is the distinctions in these theological systems starts breaking down. Not because we're trying to preserve theological systems, but because the underlying issues of interpretation and understanding what the Bible is actually teaching is at stake. It's what the Bible teaches that matters, not some uh, theological system. So I believe that probably the best understanding of this is that which was articulated by Darby, that in the Old Testament you have promises and prophecies that are made in relation to Israel, and they all come together in fulfillment at the second coming. None of them are even partially fulfilled before the second coming. So in the Old Testament you have your foundational covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. The land aspect is developed in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10 in the real estate covenant, and that's not fulfilled until they're brought into the land as a regenerate people at the second coming. Then you have the Davidic covenant, and even though Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem as a descendant of David, he doesn't take the Davidic throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant until the second coming. And so the New Covenant, which is linked to the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant and the Land Covenant and Old Testament passages, is not fulfilled for Israel until the Second Coming. But we in the church age benefit from its its establishment at the cross with Israel. It's established, but it doesn't come into effect 
until the second coming. So we get blessing from that by association with the Lord Jesus Christ, who's party the first part in the Abraham, I mean, in the new covenant. Okay, so that it, that helps you to see what uh, the the distinction is. So there's no dual covenant. There's no new covenant with the church. Now let's start looking at some of the Old Testament passages that talk about the new covenant. The first one we'll go to is in Hosea 2.17. I'm not going to go through this in terms of their order in the Old Testament. I'm going to go through them in terms of their chronological order. So we're going to look at each of these in the order that they were given to Israel in terms of progressive, uh, progressive revelation. Hosea was a prophet uh, in the 8th century B.C. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is going to separate from the southern kingdom in a tax revolt uh, that occurs in uh, about approximately 930 uh, B.C. And it's going to be in that that tax revolt that... um, that brings about this split that occurs, and God is going to discipline the nation that way. And speaking of tax revolt, I had a great little email that came the other day, just to give you an understanding. Taxes have always been a problem. I want you to understand, before we talk about taxes, the nature of the term a billion. See, we have politicians that always talk about, well, I need a billion dollars for this and a billion dollars for that. And a billion's a big term. So how big is a billion? A billion, a billion seconds ago, it was 1959. A billion minutes ago, Jesus was alive. A billion hours ago, we didn't even have creation. A billion dollars ago was noon in terms of federal spending. goes fast, doesn't it? Now, thinking in terms of how much is a billion, Louisiana Senator Mary Landrieu has asked Congress for $250 billion to rebuild New Orleans. Well, just how much is... billion. Can we really get our mental fingers around that? Well, if you're one of the 484,674 residents of New Orleans, that's every man, woman, and child, you get $516,528 apiece. Or if you have one of the, own one of the 188,251 homes in New Orleans, your home gets... One billion, one million, excuse me, your home gets $1,329,787 for repairs. That's just your house. Everybody's house gets that, that amount. Or if you're a family of four, your family gets $2,066,012. That's how much $250 billion is. So, we have a little poem that somebody put together. Tax his land, tax his wage, tax his bed in which he lays, tax his tractor, tax his mule, tax, teach him taxes is the rule. Tax his cow, tax his goat, tax his pants, tax his coat, tax his ties, tax his shirts, tax his work, tax his dirt, 
Tax his tobacco. Tax his drink. Tax him if he tries to think. Tax his booze. Tax his beers. If he cries, tax his tears. Tax his bills. Tax his gas. Tax his notes. Tax his cash. Tax him good and let him know that after taxes he has no dough. If he hollers, tax him more. Tax him until he's good and sore. Tax his coffin. Tax his grave. Tax the sod in which he lays. Put these words upon his tomb. Taxes drove me to my doom. And when he's gone, we won't relax. We'll still be after the inheritance tax. And then there's a list of taxes that we all pay. Accounts receivable tax, building permit tax, CDL tax, cigarette tax, corporate income tax, dog license tax, federal income tax, federal unemployment tax, fishing license tax, food license tax, dual permit tax, gasoline tax, hunting license tax, inheritance tax, inventory tax, IRS interest charges, tax on top of tax, IRS penalties, tax on top of tax, liquor tax, luxury tax, marriage license tax, Medicare tax, property tax, real estate tax, service charge taxes, social security tax, road usage tax, sales taxes, recreational vehicle tax, school tax, state income tax, state unemployment tax, telephone federal excise tax, telephone federal universal service fee tax, telephone federal state and local surcharge tax, telephone minimum usage surcharge tax, telephone recurring and non-recurring charges tax, telephone state and local tax, don't talk on the telephone. Uh, telephone usage charge tax, utility tax, vehicle license registration tax, vehicle sales tax, watercraft registration tax, well permit tax, workers' compensation tax. The ten northern tribes of Israel revolted on a whole lot less than this. The American War of Independence took place on a whole lot less than this. None of these taxes existed 100 years ago. Our nation at the time was the most prosperous in the world. We had no national debt. We had the largest middle class in the world. Mom didn't have to work outside the home. She stayed home with the kids. We just have our politicians to thank. Okay, Israel, the northern kingdom, revolted in a tax revolt about approximately 930 B.C., And so that's the 10th century B.C. This is 770, about 150 years after that, during the time of not Jeroboam I, but Jeroboam II, that you have God call out three key prophets in the Old Testament. They are contemporaries of each other, Hosea, Isaiah, and Amos, or Amos. These are the the three key prophets to the and and um, uh, Amos and Hosea are in the north. And Hosea is the first to speak of the new covenant that someday would replace the other covenants. And he seems in despair as he addresses the northern kingdom because uh, at this time they're surrounded by the uh, Baal worship. And if you look at the overall context of how uh, Revelation has been given in the Old Testament and how Hosea is structured, uh, there is a condemnation, judgment, deliverance cycle in, um, 
in Hosea, and this is in the second cycle within the structure of the book from chapter 2, verses 2 down through 23. And each of these cycles goes from condemnation and judgment to deliverance and restoration. They all speak of, of restoration in the end, that God is going to judge them. And that goes all the way back to the Mosaic Covenant that God promised in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 30 that if they disobeyed God, God would take them out of the land, but eventually He would restore them from the four corners of the earth. Now, that's never happened before. They were taken out, Northern Kingdom in 722 B.C., Southern Kingdom in 586. They're taken out. There's only a small group that returns primarily from Babylon, not from the four corners of the earth, in five between 538 and... Um, 444, when Nehemiah is written, you have three basic returns, one under Zerubbabel, uh, one under Ezra, uh, and one under Nehemiah. Well, Hosea is much before all of, uh, all of that, and he's predicting this, the, that little, refer, little re, re, return that occurs uh, after the exile is simply a foreshadowing of the future full-bore restoration and regeneration. And so in Hosea 2.17, God says through Hosea, For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals. In other words, under divine discipline, God is going to discipline Israel so harshly that they will never again be involved in idol worship. And that is exactly what happens when the, the Israelites return after the Babylonian captivity. That's what led in reaction to the development of Pharisaism. They, they were so concerned and, uh, and distraught because God had taken them out of the land that th- they wanted to just eradicate any possible form of idolatry from the land when they returned in uh, 538 B.C. And eventually that leads to the idea that, that uh, uh, of all of the legalism. And what they did is they had the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law has uh, 513 or 512 commandments. And so they want to make sure that you didn't break any of those commandments. So what we have to do is we have to set a, build a fence of commandments around the law to, to establish these secondary prohibitions. Because if you, if you break one of those, you still haven't broken the law, but it's going to keep you from getting too close and actually breaking the law. And that was what they would view the Mishnah, the rabbinical teaching at the time of Christ. And then along comes the Talmud. Talmud builds a second fence around the other two. So that the idea being that as you build up these traditions of the Pharisees and the, the rabbis, that that would keep the Jews from getting close to breaking the laws uh, in the Mosaic Law. And so it was such a harsh discipline, the destruction, the violence, the uh, famines that occurred, the fact that under siege the mothers were uh, cannibalizing their own children, the violence that occurred in both the northern kingdom with the Assyrian invasion and later in the southern kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar undergoing three foreign invasions in 605, 593, and finally 586 was so horrendous 
that the Jews wanted to make sure nothing like that would ever happen again so that rather than becoming grace-oriented and God-oriented, they just became legalistic. And this is what, but this is part of the fulfillment of Hosea 2.17. I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. God said he'd wipe out idolatry. And then he says, in that day, this phraseology in that day often refers to that future day of redemption, the covenant, the day of the Lord, completion and establishment of the kingdom. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. What does that sound like? Where do you read similar terminology in the Bible? When God first creates Man, he says, I have created him to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. So we have this. This is a rolling back of the curse during the millennial kingdom. Not completely, because man is still sinful, and those who marry have children have sin natures, but it is a partial rollback of the curse that occurs in the millennial kingdom. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth. Isaiah is going to talk about this, that uh, spears will be uh, beaten into pruning hooks and swords into plowshares, and man will learn war no more. That is ripped out of context and emblazoned over the entry to the uh, UN building in New York. So if you think the UN is secular, it's not. Uh, by using that as their motto, they are assuming for themselves a messianic role. Any politician who supports international courts, who supports internationalism and the rule of the UN is just you know, promoting the old temple of uh, Babel, the Tower of Babel mentality of internationalism. Uh, there's not going to be an end to war until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is the true Prince of Peace, establishes kingdom on the earth. So this is the first indication that there's going to be a new covenant. The term new is not used, but there's this prophecy that in that day, in the coming of the kingdom, God says, I will make a covenant for them. And that this is your first indication that there is going to be a, a new covenant. Now, in later passages in Hosea, for example, in Hosea 2, 2.19, there is uh, <clears throat> the emphasis on the length of time that this new covenant is going to be established forever. I will betroth you to me forever, God says. And so this is uh, the fulfillment that it will be an eternal uh, covenant. Also, if you look at Hosea 2.20, there's the indication that uh, the, the covenant recipients will know God. Then, the text says, then you will know the Lord. Furthermore, in Hosea 2, 21-22, the covenant ensures the future prosperity and the material blessing of the nation in association with her return to the land. There's that, that land connection. And if you recall from our studies in in Deuteronomy and the Mosaic Law, God promised them that if they were obedient to Him, God would bless them with material prosperity. And this is going to be fulfilled with the establishment of the new covenant 
according to Hebrew, uh, according to Hosea 2:21 uh, to 22. Uh, <clears throat> another point, the covenant establishes this distinct personal relationship between God and his people who are referred to as my people in uh, Hosea 2.23. And then the last point I want to make is also in 2.20 we realize that this comes from the initiation of God. God initiates this covenant. So in Hosea chapter 2, from verse 17 down through verse 20, we have all the basic elements of the new covenant already stated. But the term new in new covenant is not there. The next reference that we have to the new covenant is found in Isaiah. I'm not going to go through all the Isaiah passages, but I do want to look at Isaiah 61 eight and nine and that whole context. So turn with me there to Isaiah chapter chapter sixty one. Now this isn't the first time in Isaiah that Isaiah alludes to a future covenant that will replace the old covenant. He also alludes to this in Isaiah forty two verse six, Isaiah forty nine eight, Isaiah fifty four ten Isaiah 55.3, Isaiah 59.21, and our passage here is Isaiah 61.8 and 9. First of all, in all six of these references, there's a covenant promise to the nation that follows a period of national condemnation and judgment. That's exactly the kind of thing you have going back to Deuteronomy. The reason I keep going back to Deuteronomy is... I want you to understand that everything in the Bible fits together. And you have to understand these things in light of other parts of the revelatory process. And in the Mosaic Law, God promised Israel that if they obeyed him, he would bless them with physical, literal prosperity, uh, agricultural fertility, and they would be known among all the nations. But if they were disobedient, God said he would take them through five different stages of discipline, the most extreme of which was to remove them from the land, the land being the land that God had promised them, uh, promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant and reiterated in the, in the Palestinian or the land covenant. So God says he's going to take them out of the land. But he says in all those passages that eventually he will bring them back from everywhere to the land and the indication there is they will come back um, in two stages. One stage is a return that is in a, still in apostasy. And that, I believe, is being fulfilled today. That God is bringing them back to the land because there has to be a national Israel in the land, a government in the land, uh, at the beginning of the tribulation, because what begins the tribulation is the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's what kicks off the chronology of the last seven years, Daniel's 70th week. Now that Israel that returns to the land is an apostate Israel. They have not accepted Christ as Messiah. And one of the first things they do, either just prior to or just after the signing of that peace treaty, is to rebuild the temple. It is an apostate temple. It is where they're still going to enact the Mosaic Law, not believing that the Messiah 
has come. But there is a second return that occurs, and it's a return in regeneration. And for many years, there were dispensationalists who confused those two and didn't recognize that there were two returns to the land. So there's an initial return that's in unbelief and then a second return that is in belief. And that return comes from the four corners of the earth. It's never happened before. It did not happen in the uh, 6th century, 538, 516, 5th century in in 450 with Ezra or, or, or 460 or 444 with Nehemiah. So what you have in these Isaiah references is that there will be a future covenant that comes after this period of national condemnation and it precedes a period of uh, unparalleled prosperity and happiness and spiritual blessing. And all of these passages take are, are covered in Isaiah 42.6. The ones I mentioned earlier are all in the section of Isaiah called the Book of Comfort from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah uh, chapter 66. The second thing we ought to note about these Isaiah passage passages is that the servant of the Lord, which is a messianic title, it does not refer to Israel. See, modern Judaism couldn't handle Isaiah 53. In fact, sometime try to ask one of your Jewish friends to explain how they understand Isaiah chapter 53. And if they know anything about it, they will probably tell you that the suffering servant in Isaiah is the nation Israel. But that's not the historic position. It took about 800 years into the Christian era before the rabbis finally came up with that position. Uh, and they did it because any time... Christians used Isaiah 53 to witness to Jews. Jews recognized that that had to refer to Jesus Christ. So they had to come up with some sort of imaginative, inventive interpretation of Isaiah 53 to uh, quit getting slaughtered by uh, Christians, slaughtered metaphorically, in evangelism. So the servant of the Lord is the Messiah in these passages and the servant of the Lord is clearly commissioned to be the mediator of this covenant. You can look at Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49, uh, verse 8. The third thing we should note is that in connection with the servant of the Lord in these passages, the servant of the Lord is understood as a descendant of David the uh, a descendant of uh, Jesse, the root of Jesse, the branch of David. Uh, you can look at passages such as Isaiah chapter uh, 55, verse 3, where you have a clear association between David <coughs> and this new covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. So here you see the new covenant that is connected, like we saw in Hosea with the land, and now in Isaiah, it's connected with the Davidic covenant. So you can't distinguish the new covenant from these other covenants. They all come together and are fulfilled uh, at the same time. Fourth observation is the servant, in conjunction with the fulfillment of the covenant, the new covenant, the establishment of the new covenant, fulfills a saving role toward the Gentiles. So through the function of the servant of Israel, the suffering servant 
Gentiles are going to be saved. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, he is described as a light to the nations, to the uh, Gentiles, to the Goyim. Okay, that takes us up and covers these passages. Now let's look at Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and I will make them an everlasting covenant. In contrast to the Mosaic covenant, which was a temporary covenant. So this is a prophecy related to a future everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles. That is, the Jewish descendants at that time would become known among the Gentiles. They will become famous. Isaiah 2 talks about the fact that all the nations will come to Jerusalem to worship. Their offspring, the descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. And this has not yet been fulfilled and won't be fulfilled until Jesus Christ uh, returns. So that takes us up to uh, the Isaiah, takes us through the Isaiah passages. Now the next key passage is the one that is quoted in Hebrews chapter eight, and that is Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one through thirty-four. Jeremiah Isaiah operates in the eighth century B.C., and Jeremiah operates in the sixth. Uh, Late seventh, I mean, yeah, late seventh, early sixth century BC. He is right before the exile and during the exile. He's the one who's warning them about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And in Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, that the present covenant, the Mosaic covenant, will be ended and there will be a new covenant. It's not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day. So it's clearly distinguished in context from the Mosaic covenant, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. How can you miss that? It's obviously talking about uh, 1446 B.C. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Not the, not the church, but with the house of Israel after those days. Notice how now it's a house of Israel. The indication here is a unity of the nation once again. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That should be taken together. It's talking about the same thing. There is going to be this internal knowledge, an intuitive Direct knowledge of doctrine, the gospel among Jews. And there are many who believe on the basis of this, that this means that all Jews in the millennial kingdom will be saved. There will be no Jew that rejects the gospel in the millennial, in the millennial kingdom. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor. See, now the implication is that if nobody's going to teach anybody the gospel or explain the gospel to one another in the, in, in, in the kingdom, then how are they going to get saved? 
Well, they're going to get saved because God automatically puts it in their heart. Now, that's very different from what we've seen in other dispensations. But it's a dispensational shift. There's something that is radically different that occurs with Israel and with Jewish believers and with the Jews in the Millennial Kingdom. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, pastor, teachers, or out of a job. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Every one of them. So it's not like today. Now, this isn't talking about Gentiles. This is talking about in Israel. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. So this expands on. It's not just say all of them, meaning maybe most of them, which all sometimes means most. But here all means everyone. It's expanded in the next phrase. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So I have nine points on the New Covenant, which we will begin with when I return from Kiev. And since we have Arnold here, I guess we won't get back to this for a month. So we'll just hold that thought. It's a good place to stop because I'll have to review the New Covenant when I come back and we'll go over Jeremiah 31 again and then go through those nine points. All right, with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be reminded that that there was a work on the cross that was related to this covenant with Israel. It is on the basis of that that we have salvation and many blessings to us, but we are not part of that new covenant. But we look forward to, as the Jews do, to that future regeneration of Israel according to Romans 11 according to numerous other passages, the regeneration of the Jews. Father, we pray that you'd help us as we think about these things, study these things, realizing that uh, we need to understand this because it is vital to our understanding of even the present priestly ministry of Jesus Christ to the church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.